0: welcome to the pogle podcast a new conversation from the pogle project that celebrates innovative educators both in and out of the classroom join us as we think out loud with pogle educators researchers and others working to transform teaching and learning for the 21st century i'm matt tarka of the pogle project and today we continue with part two of alex grushow's conversation with rick moog founder and executive producer of the Pogel Project. David Hanson, who is, uh, was a faculty member at Stony Brook University at the time in chemistry, he now has since retired. He actually had gone to the same workshop that John Farrell and I had gone to in 1994. Well, he hadn't gone to that specific one, but he'd attended one of them. Um, and he had been implementing a version of that approach in recitation sections in chemistry at Stony Brook, and uh, had with some success. So there was a—I a, don't remember exactly when it was. I think it was one of the at one of the ACE American Chemical Society national meetings. We just were ha- at dinner and having a conversation about what we all were doing, and David suggested that we write a grant. David Hanson suggested we write a grant where we sort of combined the work that had been done at Stony Brook, the work that had been done. Um, at FM and developing these materials for at that time called lectureless chemistry. And we combine that with the laboratory materials through madcap that Frank Cregan had been uh, spearheading, and that we write a grant to NSF to disseminate them because the, the multi-initiative dissemination project was coming to an end and people were still very interested in, in these materials and this approach. And so David said, well, I think it's a really good idea that we that we write this proposal together and he said but i think that it makes sense for it to be um, written by the people at fnm because you know there's two of you and there's only one of me and then jim spencer said well i'm getting old and i don't really need to be in charge I think Rick should write this proposal because whoever writes it should be in charge. And and I'm you know I'm getting old. I'm going to retire soon. And he he did retire five, six, seven years after that. But anyway, once again, I get you know hoodwinked into writing this proposal uh, for the NSF. And we we wrote the entire proposal, and we still didn't have a, a name for what we were doing. And David Hansen and the Pacific Crest people call their approach process education and Hanson was really much more oriented at that time toward the development of process skills. And we at FNM were much more oriented toward the guided inquiry part of things and we decided that we needed to somehow merge this orientation toward process and this orientation toward guided inquiry into something that was pronounceable. So (laughs) we had, yeah, that was the goal. It had to, the the acronym, you had to be able to say it. So we tried various things. I'm pretty sure, although I wouldn't swear on it, that I'm the one that came up with the particular arrangement of words, process oriented, guided inquiry learning. Um, But at least it was pronounceable. And we did have some argument about how it was pronounced. Um, and the Pogil people won out over the Pogil people, so okay. <laughs> it's pronounced Pogil. We also made it grammatically incorrect, so there are no hyphens officially in process-oriented guided inquiry learning, even though some grammarians claim there should be. So
1: right. So I, and I think you you talked a little bit about this that you know early on in the in the national dissemination grant um, sort of you became. The leader, because you you know you weren't paying attention, and Jim Spencer <laughs> right. sort of got his, <laughs> basically directed things from behind the scenes there, and you ended up in front. Um, but uh, you know now the project is is really a, uh, I mean yes you're you're the executive director, but there's a lot of things that go on in the project you know that you don't control. I mean was this your plan all along? Was to like try and get a lot of other people to do all the work and uh you know that sort of thing or was this sort of like again something that sort of just sort of grew out of you know as the project got larger and larger
0: well you know there's a there are a number of answers to that question and 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 i think that i think the most apt one is something that once the once the nsf grant from uh, that started Pogel was obtained and and we started operating as a as a project, even though it wasn't called the Pogo Project to begin with. It was just, we're doing this NSF grant thing. Um, but that was in, in January of 2003. And one of the things that Jim and I talked about and, and that we, uh, and it turned, you know, it, it, the reality is the two of us were really the ones running the, running that grant. There were other people who were co-PIs and they had very important roles, but, but, you know, the office was located at FNM. It was actually originally in Jim Spencer's, Research lab. Once he'd stopped doing research, that's actually where the office was, and we have one employee still, Ellen Harpel, who worked in that space. Uh, you know, way back when. Right but, next to the fume hood, right? Uh, right next to the fume hood. Yeah, we would <laughs> taken all the chemicals and well, not maybe not even all, most of the chemicals out of there. Uh, but anyway, um, one of the things we realized was that first there's five. PIs in this grant, we actually can't possibly do all of the work that's, that's involved here. We can't do every single workshop by ourselves. And we actually had as part of the proposal, a plan for how to develop new leaders in the project, how to move people along what's called the, you know, sort of this innovation decision model uh, series of steps, to get people from being curious and being engaged to actually being leaders, and we knew from the very beginning that it was important to develop new to develop leaders who could. At that time, we were just thinking about running workshops, but to do that because the five of us couldn't do everything. Um, at the same time, Jim, in particular, had a, a vi- had a view of professional development of colleagues that I think really set the set the tone for the project as a whole. And and that is that the the project isn't about the people on top being important. The project is really about helping all of our colleagues do what they're trying to, you know, accomplish what they're trying to accomplish. And, And that really, I think, came from him. And that's sort of the view of leadership that I have also, right? That what you want to do as a leader is help the people that are with you to achieve what they're trying to achieve and what we're trying to achieve collectively, even better than they could imagine it ever could happen, right, that that's, that that's what leadership is about. And so that's really the perspective that we took from the beginning, right, is that we're trying to develop a community. We didn't ever expect it to last for you know as long as it has or to become what it's become, but, but we're trying to develop a community because that's what will enable us to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish and it will provide professional development opportunities for our colleagues, and it will help people accomplish their goals for their students, right? So that's, that's really the perspective that we had. And no, I would never have thought in 2002, when May of 2002 or whenever it was that we submitted that proposal, that in June of 2020, this is where we would be, right? Uh, right. At the time, it was just, yeah, this is a really good idea. We wanna keep disseminating. Let's do this.
1: So so now we're up to present time and I want to mm-hmm. uh, talk a little uh, describe for uh, some people some things that that the project does. Um, there are two kinds of pogo meetings that that, that uh, some people may know about. There are, you know, the workshops that most people know about where you know, sort of the primary goal is to again disseminate the ideas and um, help attendees learn about the pogo methods and and disseminate materials and uh, things like that. And then there are these working meetings where there are a number of practitioners who get together and work on developing aspects to the project. Um, and I wanted, you know, for our listeners to, to sort of gauge, is this kind of an activity unique in academic development? And sort of what prompted the development of these working meetings where you like bring 20 to 40 people from around the country to work on other aspects of the project
0: um, every you know just like almost everything that's happened in the Pogo project where we are now is just a product of an organic process that involves you know the leadership and the community just sort of figuring out what do we need to do and how do we need to do it so the very first working meeting what is what we refer to now as the Pogo national meeting the very first one of course was associated with the first NSF grant right so one of the things we said in our NSF grant since we were going to be doing we explicitly we going to be you know bringing along new people in the project and helping them develop as workshop leaders and as members of the organization is that we were going to have an annual meeting in which that's what we did that we had people come and and learn about how to run workshops or learn about our approach or help us figure out how to accomplish some goal that we had. So the very first one was held at FNM in the spring of 2003. There were about 20 people there. Um, and that's what the purpose was. It was to get together with the, with the uh, PIs of the grant. We got about 15 people in, in addition to the five PIs and the, the two other senior personnel. And these were people who we already knew from previous connections. Some of them were people David Hansen knew. Some of them were people that we'd known from MADCAP and brought them together to do work for the project because that's what we needed to do. We had an NSF grant. We had to do stuff. And so we were getting people to help us do that and to help bring them along in the project. Uh, and then every we had one every year associated with that first grant. And w- our plan was that every year there'd be five more people. So the first year there were a total of maybe 20 or 25 people. Then the next year there were 25 or 30. And then the next year there were maybe 30 or 35. We had most of those in the Middle Atlantic region. And often it turned out that we would have them back to back with the MADCAP meeting that was taking place. So kind of get get some synergy there um, in terms of professional development. And as the project grew through the first, you know, six to eight years, it became clear that we had a huge demand for workshops. And one of the things that we needed was to train people to be workshop facilitators. So in sort of the mid 2000s to up through 2010 or so, one of the focuses main focuses of that national meeting was to develop people to do to lead workshops that that's and and and, because that was such a, a crucial aspect of things and to try out as a way of trying out new things or new components to our workshops but as the project kept growing over the last 10 years just you know the the interests and the interest of people involved and the needs of the community has evolved to get us to where we are now and you know our meeting now has of some component of it is new workshop development and we have a completely separate event for facilitator training that's not associated with the national meeting we now have working groups that are working at the meeting and often throughout the rest of the year to work on issues or new projects or new initiatives for the Pogo project, so it's really been an organic process, and and really led and and shaped by shaped by the community, and led by our our steering committee um, that we now have uh, that really thinks about how to plan the national meeting to be responsive to the needs of both the project and the community of people who are there.
1: Right. So when someone goes to one of these, uh, the Pogel National Meeting, and and, uh, I've been to a number uh, over the years. You know, we're all busy doing our thing uh, to advance the work of the project. And But one of the things that I've noticed is that a lot of people will still defer to you because, well, you are the director of the project. And I know that there have been a few times when you have felt, well, this idea that somebody has brought forward or a working group has brought forward or some activity was not me not perhaps the best direction, or something with maybe, Mm -hmm. huh, I don't know, maybe that might work, maybe not. Um, And so I guess the thing, my question is, have you ever found that, you know, the community has proved you wrong?
0: Oh, my gosh. So (laughs) yes, of course. Um, I think one of the things that that, uh, before I directly answer that, I I think what I want to say is that one of the things that we've, that, that I think we've done really well, is um, develop a strategic plan. And we're now in the middle of our second five-year strategic plan. Develop a strategic plan for the project and actually try to use it as a basis for making decisions about resource allocations and directions that we're going to go. And uh, and that strategic plan is something that was truly developed by the community and for the community in a, in a, in a very broad way, that, you know, led again by the steering committee, and in particular, Chris Bauer this last time, and Susan Shadle the first time. They just did a tremendous job of getting us to think about what our, what, what our strategic plan is and, and how to structure one that's responsive to the community uh, demands. One of the things that, that I've learned about myself over this time, in this last you know, 20, 25 years, 20 years in particular, one of the things I've learned about myself and I've been working on is that I, I do have a tendency to micromanage things. And to think that I, I need to make sure that everything's going the way that it should go, and I, I think I'm much better. Much I've given, I've, I've let go of that a lot more certainly in the last ten years than I did in the first decade or so of the Pogo Project. I but I have opinions uh, about things, and I think the I think for me the 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 thing that sticks out in my mind is the was the idea of the, what was originally called the National Conference for Advanced Pogol practitioners and has been renamed for the coming events the National Conference to Advance Pogol Practice the NCAP event
1: that, that I, was that was my example that I was going to choose if you could yeah
0: yeah i think that that i i didn't see i didn't understand the the need that uh, some members of the community had to get together with other people who were experienced and really just commune. I mean, I think that, that, that that's the part that I didn't get. I didn't understand why people would pay a lot of money to come together to do what was envisioned. And I had a hard time envisioning exactly what those things would be. And I, I couldn't have been more wrong. I'm so, and I'm so glad that I was because I didn't say, no, you can't do this. But I just said, I don't get it. I don't see how that's going to work. And Kristen Plessel, uh, who was the person who, who really was in charge for the, and led the, the development of the first NCAP meeting, um, and Marcy and the other people in the office and all the people who were involved in the planning of that event, just they got it and I didn't. And so I think I'm most concerned about things that are going to be damaging to the financial stability of the organization. And if I think something is a really big mistake, you know, in that regard, I'm going to say no. But I think in this particular case, I just said, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't see how that's going to work. I hope that my repeatedly saying that actually helped develop the event into something, you know, having people think really carefully about what they were doing. But boy, was, is that an amazingly fantastic event and one that, that I just can't imagine the project uh, without at this point. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing.
1: So so what's that feel like now? You know, you like you, you're watching all these people do work for the project and do you ever like step back from the project like at an NCAP or a PNM or something like that and just sort of like watch all these people doing work? You know, what is it, what does that feel like to, to see all these people doing things?
0: Yeah. Um I think I'll I'll tell you two just two little responses. Uh, the first one is that around 2007, eight, somewhere in there. We were on our second NSF grant. We'd gotten some money from the Toyota Foundation to develop the materials for high school chemistry. I suddenly looked up one day and said, oh my God, people, people think this is a real thing. <laughs> people, people are working for this project and they think they have real jobs and people are doing stuff as if, as if we're like an actual entity that exists or is supposed to exist or is going to exist in the future. I mean, I really up until somewhere around there. So we're five years in. I just sort of said, yeah, you know, we have this NSF grant and we're doing stuff right. I didn't really think of the what we were doing as anything that was permanent or maybe real isn't the right word, but I hope you understand what I mean. It's just like
1: maybe consequential,
0: consequential or something. I mean, and and it was kind of scary once I realized that there are people for whom this is like, their like working here is their real job. Like that's what they do and they think that it's a real job. So I guess we should act like it's a real job. Right. And up to, cause up to that point, it's like, yeah, we have some money from the NSF and when it runs out, I guess we're done. I mean, I don't know. And then I kind of realized right. it's like, well, and that was kind of frightening.
1: Go back to teaching. You can. Well, yeah. I mean, I had another.
0: I mean, I had another full-time job, right? right. So, I, and and so that's uh, yeah, this was sort of like the side gig, and I, so so that was one thing. And then the other thing, and I, I'm going to be really honest about this, was the Pimentel Award.
1: Tell us about that.
0: Well, w- when we were doing our very first strategic plan, so we were doing it at, was at a national meeting, and we were. Uh, Susan Shadle was leading this leading this exercise, and one of the things that she said was, "Okay, let's try to envision what the outcomes will be at the end of this five year period. We adopt the strategic plan. What will the outcomes be at the end of this five year period?" And people were, you know, as we would do at a Pogal event, people were in teams. They were sitting at tables. People wrote down individual ideas, and the teams at the tables shared those ideas, and the teams were reporting out. And one of the teams said. Rick Moog will be awarded the Pimentel Award. That's one of the things they said. They think that's sort of like, that's like a goal, or that would be an outcome if our strategic plan was successful. And I remember thinking, like, what are those people talking about? Like, that's like the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Um, Why why would anybody think that I deserve the Pimentel Award? That award is for you know, people who are making a huge impact on chemistry education broadly construed. And I'm not doing anything, right, other than kind of managing this project. Now I'm serious. That is, that is how I thought about it, right? And the reason I'm saying that, and I said the same thing when Marcy insisted that I be nominated for the Pimentel Award, and I thought that was dumb. It's everybody else in the project that's making things happen right yes i'm managing things and i'm trying to make things move in the way that they're supposed to move but i don't that's how i think about the project is that it's this amazing collective effort of people from all aspects of academia it started in chemistry in you know chemistry departments at colleges and universities but the high school teachers and the middle school teachers and the people in biology and math and physics and computer science and English and graphic design and every field you can imagine are all doing this amazing work. And I'm just kind of hanging out, watching it take place uh, and trying to, to keep things going. So uh, I, I'm not sure that's exactly an answer to the question that you posed, but that's really how I think about it. It's just it's an amazing community of really dedicated and brilliant and insightful and thoughtful educators that is what's making things happen.
1: So um, I I didn't realize that the Pimentel award was just sort of this, this watershed uh, sort of thing for you that, I mean, to me, when you won that award, it sort of made perfect sense. You know, based on where the project had been, some of the things that you've been doing, and I guess the leadership that you had taken in the project, and I think you know a lot of other people feel exactly the same way. I want to get back to your classroom now. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've been using guided inquiry methods for quite a while, yeah. Um, and I wonder if you could sort of indicate uh, what the biggest change has been in your teaching. So You've been doing this guided inquiry for more than twenty years. Has and have you? Could you document any changes from you know what you were doing back in the late nineties to you know what you're doing now?
0: Wow, that's that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I'm old, so it's hard to remember details from the late nineties. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's most different for me is that when I am much more aware of and attentive to thinking about development of student process skills than I was when I started. So as I think I said earlier, my orientation and the orientation of us at FNM to begin with was in the guided inquiry part. And we really didn't think very much about the process development part early on. That was real, that really came uh, from the from David Hansen, who really was thinking about that. And he wasn't thinking as much about the guided inquiry part so if you look at the difference between the activities that David Hansen developed for college level chemistry and that we developed for college level general chemistry uh, you can see that ours are much more oriented around even though they're still the early ones are not great they were much more oriented around a learning cycle approach and his were much more about thinking about what you're learning right or how you're learning it which i think was a really nice mixture but you know, it took a while, at least for me, to really grasp how to meld those things effectively. And again, as I said before, people within the project who were thinking about those things much more deeply and carefully than I are the ones who kind of pushed the project and me, in general and me in particular in that direction. So I think that's probably, for me, the biggest difference. The the other thing is, of course, that just like anything, if you've been doing it for a long time, things just become second nature that you may have had to really think about before. And so I think I'm better now at not intervening than I was previously, right? right? Because I have a better sense of what's going to happen, even though it looks like it's going astray right now. I think if I leave those students alone, they're going to figure it out. And, you know, that kind of thing. But I, I would say the emphasis on process skills is probably the biggest thing, really thinking about what's going on there in the classroom, what I'm trying to accomplish, how to help students accomplish those, work on those skills. That's
1: probably the biggest change for me. Some of our listeners might know uh, you're planning to retire from teaching in the not too distant future. Mm -hmm. Um, You're not going to retire from the project. Um, I don't think Marcy will let you do that. Right. Um, So what's the thing that you're going to miss the most about this? And then tell us something about what you might miss the least. Now, you don't have to be honest about this.
0: Well, I can, I know for sure what I'm... I know absolutely 100% what I'm going to miss the least about being a faculty member at Franklin and Marshall College. Well, there are two things. They're 1A and 1B. And they are grading lab reports of any kind and going to faculty meetings. So those... the, I definitely... That's almost enough for me to just say, "Yeah, I'm never going back again." No, uh, those are definitely the things I will I will miss the least. Those are very un- I just don't you know. I think
1: I, I could tell that from my old lab reports. Yes, so well, yes, you, I you, yeah, you, we've had back some, in the eighties. You yes. didn't like grading lab. Reports, no, I don't really so. like
0: grading lab reports. Um, <laughs> no, I think the thing that I the thing I miss the most is the students. I love my you know the students are just amazing. I really love whenever anybody asks me like what. You know why I I like the job that I have. What I say is that you know I actually really enjoy helping eighteen to twenty two year olds like figure out where they're going. Right. That that I just I really love that. Um, and uh, you know being a chemistry professor provides a context for me to interact with students. But that's really how I view my job. Right. That my job is to help these eighteen to twenty two year olds figure out where they're going, and how to get there. It's the thing that brings me to my office every day. I have a great group of colleagues right now in the chemistry department, so that's very enjoyable, and colleagues across campus. I like watching students figure stuff out, right? that Those aha moments are joyful for me as they are for the students, and I really like that. But I think just the variety of interactions with students is really the thing that I'm going to miss the most. Mm.
1: I want to ask you a different style of question or a different, down a different vein here. Um, so when you're at home, do you have a lot of pogle paraphernalia around? I know you have some in your office. But so, I mean, for example, in my house, we have a number of pogle bottles and, you know, pogle T-shirts and things and pens and all of the notebooks and stuff that we get as uh, swag that, that Marcy gives us. And it's actually a bit of a joke among my children. Um, so how is this Pogel thing that has taken over your professional life insinuated itself into your house?
0: And, yeah, and, that's a great question. Does, I love does that. Does your family uh, yeah. you
1: know, appreciate so this? So
0: this is really, I'll. I'll, I'll, co- I'll come clean here. I, as anybody who works in our office knows, I am not a big swag fan. Like to <laughs> me, that's just not a thing. I don't really like... I don't care about, like if I go to conferences, I don't care what swag I get. Quite often I leave it in the hotel room or whatever. Like I just, <laughs> not a big swag person. But having said that, we have several pogol bags of various kinds that we use for when we go grocery shopping, mm-hmm. right? The pogol water bottle is a, has a prominent role in uh, when we go hiking. Uh, or do other kinds of exercise, right? We have our Pogol water bottle with us. I'm sitting here doing this interview, wearing my Pogol shirt from the 2019 NCAP meeting. And actually this, this past few months, I've been, my Pogol shirts have been part of my regular um, clothing rotation, which is a little unusual for me. So, and and I've there, there was a Pogel, little Pogel desk calendar that's up in our our bedroom that's now out of date, but we like the pictures on it. So, it's, I wouldn't say, like, if you came into my house, if you didn't know otherwise, you wouldn't immediately say, oh, my gosh, this guy must be into Pogel because there's not <laughs> stuff all over the place. But if you were uh, observant, you'd see some things um, uh, uh, sitting around.
1: Now, did your family sort of make fun of this at some point? You know, when when these things started coming home, like I mean, I get this all the time. Like, Dad, you just came back from a Pogo meeting. What did you, you know? What what sort of stuff did you bring home this time? Like, right. I, I was the same way. I didn't usually like. I'd bring home a couple of pens, and they would sort of yeah. find their way into a drawer. But this is this was this has been different. Like, I have my Pogo water bottle right here next to the next yeah. to the microphone.
0: My kids mostly ignored me while they were growing up. In fact. <laughs> Apparently one time I was out of town for a few days and like on the second or third day I was out of town at dinner one night. This is when my kids were probably in their tweens to early teens. So their their age range is about five years. Um, One of my children apparently said to my wife, when's dad coming home from the office tonight? Now I'd been out of town for like two days at that point. They hadn't seen me. And my wife had to say, well, you know, he's like, he's in Chicago. They go, oh, okay. And then they just kind of kept eating. It's like they don't really care. It's like they, you know, I'm either there or I'm not. They don't really notice. It doesn't really matter. So, no, it, it was not, it ended up not being a big deal for my kids. I imagine it every once in a while. I think they might have wanted a water bottle or, you know, a shirt or something. But, no, they, it, it was not a big deal a big in, in the family, the, the swag.
1: No. <laughs> uh, Rick, I want to thank you for your sure. time. Uh, it's been, uh, you know, some of the stories I'd heard, some of the stories I have not heard. Uh, and I think uh, our listeners uh, will definitely appreciate uh, getting some of the background stories uh, for the uh, development of the Pogel Project.
0: Thanks to all of you for listening to today's conversation on the Pogel Podcast. Intro and outro music of our podcast is produced by Pogle practitioner Wayne Pearson, who you will meet in Episode 2. Please join us next time as we think out loud with Pogel educators, researchers, and others working to transform teaching
1: and learning for the 21st century.